August 17, 1966. By the time 3 p.m. rolled around, the lunch crowd had trickled out of the small bar near Rio de Janeiro, leaving it nearly deserted. Outside, rain pattered on the pavement. As the waitress, who we'll call Clara, prepared for the dinner shift, two men came in. They were dressed in neatly pressed suits and sported identical rain slickers. Clara stepped away from her cleaning to take their orders. All they wanted was a single bottle of water. As she went to retrieve the drink, she couldn't help but notice the men seemed on edge. The younger-looking one kept checking his watch. Clara returned with the water, along with a receipt, which they carefully pocketed. She kept tabs on the duo as she moved about the restaurant. Before long, they disappeared through the front door, taking their skittish energy with them. Clearly, they were in a rush. They didn't have time to sit around and chit-chat. They had a meeting that would take them out of this world. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first and only episode on the lead mask case, the mysterious 1966 death of two men. They were found near Rio de Janeiro without a scratch on them, each wearing a lead eye mask. And though Brazilian police uncovered plenty of clues, the case still baffles today. Today, we'll try to explain the strange incident. In the absence of an official explanation, amateur detectives have come to their own conclusions. Some say it was a suicide pact. Others claim it was the ugly end to a psychedelic experience. And more than a few locals have connected the deaths to a rash of UFO sightings. All we know for sure is the case exists in the hazy space between science and superstition. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here 
and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It was another rainy August evening in Rio. All through the summer of 1966, downpours had lashed the Brazilian city. Today, an 18-year-old looked up at the roiling clouds as he trudged through Niterói, a suburban neighborhood just outside of town. Many sources from the time didn't identify this 18-year-old, while more contemporary research calls him Jorge da Costa Alves. For simplicity, this is how we will address him in this episode. Jorge's gaze moved to Vintang Hill. As he took in the steep mound, he noticed two men seated at the precipice. Georges was baffled. He couldn't understand why anyone would be sitting out in the middle of a storm, let alone at the top of a mountain. As he hurried along the street, the image stuck with him. A few days later, on August 20th, the rain gave way to sunshine and wind. For Georges, that meant one thing. It was the perfect time to fly a kite, and there was no better place to do it than Vintang Hill. Clear blue skies framed his glider as it flew high above his head, for a little while, anyway. Before long, the breeze tugged his kite out of his hands, carrying it until it crashed nearby. This was a standard hazard of the hobby, and Georges gamely marched into the thick, overgrown brush to retrieve it. As he reached the end of the path, a foul smell wafted through the air. It seemed like it came from further upslope. Georges thought about turning around, but his curiosity got the better of him. He followed the scent and eventually reached the summit. A dense layer of leaves covered a barren patch of earth, thick bushes dotting the perimeter. Next to that lay two bodies, side by side. Georges could see they wore crisp suits beneath their matching raincoats. Their faces were expressionless, their eyes obscured by shining metal. Even so, something about them seemed familiar. Then it hit him. These were the same men he'd seen three days ago, sitting atop the hill in the pouring rain. Clearly, something horrible had happened to them since then. Unnerved, Georges ran down the hill and made his way to the neighborhood police station to report the discovery. By the time he spoke to an officer, the sun had already set. Authorities decided to hold off until morning when there'd be enough light to conduct a real investigation. The next day, the detectives realized just how unusual their new case really was. The dead man's suits were certainly odd, but their accessories were flat-out bizarre. At first, it looked like they were wearing sunglasses. But when the officers peered more closely, they saw they were lead masks. They seemed homemade, roughly shorn from a sheet of metal and cut into the shape of a sleep mask. Hoping for any clue that could explain the strange eyewear, the police dug around in the men's pockets. Sure enough, they turned up a bundle of documents. Some were personal letters written in a code they couldn't decipher. Additionally, the deceased were carrying a handkerchief, monogrammed AMS, charts covered in electrical formulas and calculations, and a note written in terse Portuguese. 
Roughly translated, it said, 4.30 p.m., be at the determined place. 6.30 p.m., swallow capsules. After effect, protect metals, wait for mask signal. The detectives couldn't make heads or tails of the message. Presumably, the determined place was Vintain Hill, but that was as far as they got. Even with all the physical evidence, investigators had no clue how the men died. Neither one of them appeared to be injured. After thoroughly combing through the scene, the police brought the bodies down to the medical examiner. Before long, they managed to identify the deceased. They were Manuel Pereira de Cruz and Miguel José Viana. Both were electronics repairmen from Campus, which was about 140 miles northeast of where they were found. Each was married, and Miguel, the older of the two, had children. After interviewing their wives and local shop owners, police were able to piece together a timeline of their last day. Around 9 a.m. on August 17, 1966, Miguel and Manuel told their families they were headed to Sao Paulo. They planned to buy a car and some electrical equipment. They took an estimated 3 million cruzeros for their purchases and boarded a bus. They arrived five hours later, but not in Sao Paulo. Instead, they stepped off the bus in Niteroi, a suburb of Rio de Janeiro. By the time they got there, it was pouring rain. They bought slickers at a nearby shop and walked to a small bar. There, Miguel and Manuel ordered a bottle of water and saved the receipt. Around 3.15, they started their ascent of Vitaim Hill. They reached the summit and sat down. That's when Georges spotted them from below. Sometime shortly after that, Miguel and Manuel died. The police didn't know what happened between the time Georges first saw the men and their deaths. Their best guess was their demise had something to do with all their cash. Between them, Miguel and Manuel only had about 160,000 cruzeros when they were discovered. The rest of their small fortune was missing. Some reports suggested they might have been robbed, or maybe they were involved with a criminal operation. Their bodies were found near a newspaper that was open to an article about smuggling. Foreign electronics were hard to come by in Brazil. If the technicians knew how to get their hands on a hot technology, they may have illicitly supplemented their income by selling it under the table. But the men were physically unharmed. If they were robbed or killed in a smuggling operation gone wrong, it seems unlikely they would have gone down without a fight. Of course, the police wouldn't be able to determine their cause of death until the coroner examined the bodies. He concluded Miguel and Manuel died of cardiac arrest. However, he couldn't say how both men had apparently had simultaneous heart attacks. Authorities wondered if the capsules mentioned in the note had something to do with it. Perhaps the pills were toxic. Investigators ordered a second autopsy to find out, but the coroner examined the victim's digestive systems and, since the organs were in advanced decomposition, couldn't find any evidence that they'd been poisoned. As near as we can tell, he didn't file a toxicology report. At another dead end, the investigators turned back to the drawing board. 
A week passed with little progress in spite of the detectives' best efforts. They tried to decode the encrypted letters they'd recovered from the crime scene, but couldn't make heads or tails of them. Then finally, on August 25th, they got their first break in the case. It came from a socialite named Gracinda Barbosa Cochino da Sosa. It turned out Georges wasn't the only one who saw something strange on Vintain Hill on August 17th. Senora de Souza's eyes had been glued to the sky above the mountain, watching the UFO that might have killed Manuel and Miguel. Coming up, the lead mask case takes an extraterrestrial turn. Listeners, most of you probably know that I host another podcast series called Serial Killers. What you may be surprised to learn is that we've been working on that podcast for five years now. So as a special treat for the fans, we've prepared an anniversary series examining the mythology surrounding four of the most feared killers who ever lived. Kemper, Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer. This four-part series uncovers the men behind the mayhem, analyzing what turned them into killers and how their lethal behavior made them renowned for all the wrong reasons. Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any true crime or storytelling fan, and this fifth anniversary special is not one to miss. Check it out today by following Serial Killers, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1966, two bodies were found on a hill overlooking Rio de Janeiro. They held a set of strange clues, coded notes, electrical charts, and eye masks fashioned from lead. Detectives were confounded until a witness came forward with a surprising connection. On the evening of August 17th, Gracinda Barbosa Cochino da Sosa drove her three children along a major boulevard near Niteroi. It was rush hour and she tried to focus on the bumper-to-bumper traffic, but her seven-year-old cried out from the back seat. The little girl pointed out the window toward Vintain Hill and told her mother to look up at the sky. De Sosa followed her daughter's instruction and then she saw something strange. She pulled over for a better look. There, hovering overhead, it was a bright orange oval object. Its edges appeared to be ringed with fire, and it bobbed up and down like a yo-yo. De Souza watched for about four minutes as the bouncing craft fired blue rays of light in all directions. Baffled, she finally gathered her kids and piled back into the car. They drove home where she recounted the bizarre experience to her husband. A few days later, Miguel and Manuel's strange demise hit newsstands. 
When Senor da Sosa saw the reports, he realized they died at the same place on the same evening his wife saw the UFO. He couldn't help but wonder if the two incidents were somehow linked. He contacted the police, who immediately brought Senora de Sosa in for questioning. It's likely she was reluctant to testify. She belonged to Brazil's upper class, was married with children, and came from a respectable family. She knew flying saucers and aliens weren't the kinds of topics you discussed publicly if you wanted to keep your reputation intact. But she had no doubt about what she saw. The next day, the prestigious newspaper Jornal do Brasil published the details of her encounter. Suddenly, calls flooded the precinct. One after another, citizens reported seeing the same strange object flying over Vitam Hill the night of August 17th. A number of callers explained they hadn't reported the sighting earlier because they were embarrassed to share a possible UFO sighting. It took Senora de Souza stepping forward to embolden the other witnesses. Now the floodgates were open. Throughout 1966, there was a rash of UFO sightings across Rio. Months before, in March, an industrial technician had even seen several spheres hovering over Niteroi, the same neighborhood where Miguel and Manuel were later found dead. Many believed the sightings and the lead mask deaths had to be connected. Perhaps Manuel and Miguel had somehow captured the attention of a UFO and the occupants murdered them. Or their deaths were an accident on the part of extraterrestrial visitors who didn't understand human biology. As wild as it sounds, the public took this idea somewhat seriously. But the police refused to pursue any possible explanation related to outer space. One detective simply said, we don't believe in saucers. As dismissive as that might sound, authorities were dealing with and ruling out any number of unlikely theories. The same week de Souza shared her story, investigators briefly explored a possible witch doctor connection. From there, the explanations only seemed to get wilder and further afield. Eventually, they got a credible lead from Manuel's widow, Dona Nelly Pereira da Cruz. She remembered how, in the days leading up to his death, her husband had an argument with a former associate named Elcio Correa Gomez. A fight between two colleagues wasn't exactly a smoking gun. But after a week of dead ends, police knew they needed to produce results. They arrested Elcio on August 27th and brought him in for questioning. He didn't beat around the bush. As soon as he sat down in the interrogation room, he told investigators he knew exactly what happened to the two men. They'd been killed while trying to make contact with aliens from Mars. Elcio explained he, Manuel, and Miguel belonged to a movement called Scientific Spiritualists. According to the U.S. Spiritist Federation, people who observed this philosophy believe spirits and other religious or supernatural entities exist. Members can attempt to contact these beings via mediums. Since Manuel and Miguel's chapter operated in total secrecy, we don't know much about them. 
We do know they dabbled in the occult and they tried to advance their craft using machinery. Elcio told police most of the electronics technicians in the city were involved with the movement. On the strength of his testimony, the authorities searched Manuel and Miguel's homes. They found books by Bezerra de Manesis, an important author who promoted spiritist doctrine. In Manuel's workshop, they found the same lead sheets he and Miguel had used to cover their eyes lying beside texts that specifically referenced masks and the supernatural. Elcio's testimony suggested the men combined techniques outlined in the documents with their electronics expertise. Their goal? To contact otherworldly beings. A few months ago, they'd built an elaborate contraption in Manuel's garden. Before they could use it, the device exploded. Family members confirmed the men made the machine, but denied they were trying to contact an alien race. They insisted the friends had just been playing around, making homemade bombs. Whatever the explanation, their actions were certainly risky, and the explosion may have been a wake-up call. They moved their next project to a more remote location, and this time, Elcio joined them. Elcio explained to the police that months before his death, Miguel talked about his plans to conduct an extremely important experiment soon, which his sister later confirmed. Without elaborating, he and Manuel traveled to the beach town of Atafona about an hour away. Elcio met them there. As the men set up, a nearby naval ship received odd messages from three unknown radio communicators. The transmitter IDs didn't line up with any of the stations on the government's registry. Perhaps Miguel and Manuel were communicating with one another via a secret channel while they prepared their experiment. According to Elcio, the pair ran an illegal radio station out of a nearby town, so they must have had expertise and the proper equipment. They were just about finished with their setup when, out of nowhere, a craft flew over the shoreline. It was brilliantly colored, just like the orange UFO Senora de Sosa saw a few months later. The saucer hovered for about five minutes. Then suddenly, a massive explosion obliterated their machine. It was powerful enough to knock the flying ship out of the air. The craft plummeted into the ocean and sank out of view. We do know that a local correspondent for the newspaper Correo de Mania wrote about a blast that occurred at the beach around May 13, 1966, a month before Elcio claimed the explosion happened. The story notes buildings shook in the city of Campus, over 20 miles away. Later, local fishermen confirmed the UFO sighting just as Elcio described it. But the disaster didn't seem to discourage the men from trying again. Months later, Miguel once more told his sister he had to go conduct an important experiment. Likewise, Manuel told a friend he'd soon take his final test. Upon completion, he'd know whether he was a believer. But he didn't elaborate on what that meant. Shortly after those conversations, Manuel and Miguel made their fateful trip to Rio. Elcio wasn't with them, but he later told the police he was certain he knew what happened. Another experiment went awry. This time, 
his friends didn't survive. The beleaguered police scoffed at Elcio's claims. They seemed like they were out of the same playbook as the flying saucer stories jamming their telephone lines and full of discrepancies. Instead, they focused on the original tip that made them look at Elcio in the first place. His fight with Manuel before the mysterious deaths. Elcio didn't tell authorities much about the argument, nor did he say what they were fighting over. His secrecy led the officers to suspect he had something to do with the deaths. But his alibi was airtight. He was in Campus, over 100 miles away, the day Miguel and Manuel died. Once they dismissed Elcio's testimony, the police had few remaining leads. In lieu of any new evidence, on September 20th, 1966, they officially announced the case was closed. It was a hard pill to swallow, especially for Miguel and Manuel's families. But just a few years later, they seemed to get the answers they'd been waiting for. Coming up, the truth behind the lead mask case. Now, back to the story. Just a month after police opened the 1966 lead masks investigation, they closed the case. So far, the only answers they'd gotten involved aliens or the occult. To the authorities, these explanations didn't hold any water. And neither did any new possibilities. For the next three years, the case went nowhere. It seemed the unfinished story of Manuel Pereira de Cruz and Miguel José Viana would haunt the city forever. Until February 1969, when another lead came knocking on their door. An inmate at Sao Paulo prison claimed he knew how Manuel and Miguel had died. Apparently, he was there when it happened. Petty car thief and smuggler Hamilton Bazzani told authorities he was one of four career criminals included in a plot to assassinate the man. He explained how he drove his accomplices with Manuel and Miguel to the hill. There, Bazzani waited in the car as the three other men robbed them, taking most of the three million cruceros they'd carried. After grabbing the cash, they marched Miguel and Manuel to the top of the hill at gunpoint. Then, they forced them to swallow poison capsules. Unfortunately, there was no way to confirm Bazzani's story. By the time he came forward, the bodies were too decomposed for another autopsy. And as we noted before, the coroner never made a toxicology report. Still, the confession must have seemed like a gift from above for the police. After so much uncertainty, they finally knew the truth. Without questioning Bezani further, they announced their plans to arrest his co-conspirators. Newspapers worldwide readily published the findings declaring the infamous lead mask case had been solved. But just as fast as it had reignited, the investigation ground to a halt. Detectives discovered Bizani was up for a transfer to a minimum security prison. Helping the police break a major case would definitely get him on their good side. Maybe he was even willing to share a false tip 
to get the move approved. Of course, they had no proof he'd lied. Except investigators quickly realized Bazzani's motives weren't the only fishy part of his confession. There were some glaring discrepancies in the story Bazzani told authorities. For example, when asked where he and his accomplices supposedly left Miguel and Manuel's bodies, he named another mountain, not Vitain Hill. He also had no explanation for the coded notes in their pockets or the lead masks they wore. Police quietly dropped Bezani's confession and didn't grant him the transfer either. With their latest lead a bust, the investigators were back where they started, looking at a pile of clues that didn't add up to anything. But the newspaper coverage of the potential lead had reignited public interest. Before long, it seemed every amateur sleuth, conspiracy theorist, and UFO enthusiast was conducting their own investigation. Some suggested Miguel and Manuel had died by suicide. Others created elaborate backstories that sounded more like gossip than serious speculation. Wild rumors flew about shady dealings and a secret affair between the two men that ended with a deadly lover's pact. Little of this speculation had any basis in fact. But many kept returning to Elcio Gomez's testimony about a UFO. Believers pointed to the lead masks as evidence. Perhaps they were some kind of radiation shield. If the men were in contact with aliens, it's possible the spaceship or their communication device had a nuclear component. Lead can be used to protect against radiation, but a mere lead eye mask would leave the rest of the body vulnerable. And we know Miguel and Manuel didn't die of radiation poisoning because high levels can burn the skin and they didn't have any visible injuries. This didn't stop one group of spiritualists from taking this idea a step further. They insisted Miguel and Manuel weren't just trying to speak with otherworldly beings. They wanted to board their ship, too. Supposedly, this tip came straight from aliens from Jupiter who were in touch with earthbound mediums. Reportedly, the repairmen were supposed to connect with the extraterrestrials the night they died. But they were overeager. They rushed forward before receiving the proper signal and were killed on the spot. Despite the lack of concrete evidence, arcane explanations like this were all the rage. One professor suggested Miguel and Manuel were attempting telepathy using psychedelic drugs like LSD or mescaline. This would explain the pills reference in the note. Perhaps they tried to transmit thoughts to each other, or in keeping with their spiritist belief, with the souls of the dead. The professor suggested their trip turned sour and they accidentally overdosed on the hallucinogens. This explanation quickly fell apart. Remember, the second autopsy found no traces of drugs or other toxins in their systems. Besides, neither LSD nor mescaline has ever caused a fatal overdose. In rare instances, people have died from accidents that occur while hallucinating. Except, neither man had any signs of bodily injuries. And another detail from that day seems to indicate the men had no intention of attempting anything dangerous 
or of harming themselves. After they arrived in Rio on August 17th, they stopped by a bar and bought a bottle of water. Their waitress noted that they saved the receipt. At the time, customers could receive a small refund for returning the empty bottle along with a proof of purchase. It seems Miguel and Manuel intended to return to town for their fee. This makes suicide and some kind of lover's pact unlikely. Furthermore, they probably didn't plan to board a spaceship. Even so, there are still several unanswered questions about how UFOs fit into this story. Between the high number of sightings and Elcio's testimony, there's too much circumstantial evidence to ignore. But another concept might explain all of that. Perhaps every strange detail could be related to a phenomenon known as ball lightning. Ball lightning looks like a glowing, colorful orb that may be blue, red, yellow, or orange. In other words, it sounds a lot like the colorful and luminescent ovals Senora de Sosa described to police. In the right conditions, a glowing sphere of lightning can float through the air, resisting the strongest winds. Sometimes, this fiery orb can even launch through panes of glass, killing people in the process. Now, before you duck away from your windows, keep in mind, ball lightning is incredibly rare. So much so, for a long time, scientists weren't even sure it actually existed. Now, enough video and anecdotal evidence has emerged to prove it's not just an urban legend. Given the stormy conditions, it's possible ball lightning formed on the night Manuel and Miguel died. It likely would have struck high ground, like the mountain the pair were standing on. Ball lightning may have also blown up the machine they built on the beach near Atafona. That said, lightning victims are usually horribly burned and scarred, and as we've established, neither Miguel nor Manuel had a single mark on them. And ball lightning can't explain away every UFO sighting around Rio de Janeiro that year. Given how rare it is, it's highly unlikely to occur so many times in one city. It's even less likely Miguel and Manuel would have personally encountered it twice, on the beach and then atop of Vintain Hill. And it still doesn't address what exactly they were doing up on that mound. All of this leads us back to what we do know for sure. In the days leading up to their deaths, both men hinted they were about to embark on an otherworldly experiment with the unknown. At a certain point, we have to take the victims at their word. Skeptics may debate whether they were visited by UFOs, if they were dabbling in drugs, or if they encountered supernatural forces. But it's clear Miguel and Manuel were probing the limits of their reality. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with a new episode. For more information on the lead mask case, amongst the many sources we used, we found Jacques Villet's book, 
confrontations extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Thomas Dolan Gavitt, edited by Natalie Pritsovsky and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Thank you.